0: Thanks, Ryan. Well, if you've spent any time at our house, any time in the last few years, you'll probably know one thing for absolutely certain, and that is that this kid right here, William, loves Star Wars, right? Like half of you are like, oh yeah, I know. The reason you know is because he's probably insisted on showing you his uh, lightsaber from Disney World or said, hey, can I show them my favorite Star Wars video game? So William loves Star Wars, and he just can't help but share that love with all of you, right? Why does he do that? Or I bet, I mean, I'd put money on it. I can't say that from the pulpit, but I would bet (laughs) that that you guys, all of you probably have a friend who does CrossFit, um, went vegan, trying keto, and they can't help but tell you all about it, right? What they love about it, why they love it, probably why you should do it too. Why do we do that? Because we've never actually enjoyed something until we've praised it. A joy unpraised is an incomplete joy. Did you know that? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows with praise. He said that in the book, Reflections on the Psalms. And he goes on to say this. He says, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical percentages. Children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so, this is important, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. Do you see what Lewis is saying? He's just... Moving toward this goal, he's rewording what the Bible is whispering to us from cover to cover, and that is, our joy is most complete when God gets glorified. God's glory and our joy. Your happiness as a human is entirely wrapped up in God's glory. They're not just slightly related, they're, they're, it's causal, not co-relative. That's the relationship. And so we can only be deeply happy, truly full of joy when we see the glory of God and when we praise him for it together. We both praise him and say, you're magnificent. And we turn to each other and say, isn't he wonderful? That's what church does. So over the next few weeks, we're going to go through a new short sermon series called God's Glory and Our Joy I'm obviously preaching this week. Next week, Pastor Ryan, um, Michael Sharpnack, and then Ray Ortland will be preaching for us. And we've each chosen one of our favorite passages from Scripture that help us to see and savor the glory of God most clearly. And our prayer is that the Lord will increase our joy by giving us bigger glimpses of His glory in the cross. Now, today I've chosen Psalm 65. You can turn there now. Psalm 65. Um, it makes me think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, which says, what is the chief end of man? If you know the answer, you can say it with me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you believe that? The most joy-filled people that I know are the people deeply convinced that their greatest happiness, their greatest joy is entirely wrapped up in the glory of God. That's what chief end means. It means your greatest purpose. It's what you're here for, God's glory and our joy. In fact, it's also in our church's vision statement. We don't have it out all the time, but if you go on the website or read about this church, you'll read this. We exist to glorify and enjoy God as a loving, unified community of people being transformed by the power of the Spirit into the image of Christ. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist as humans. So let's let's look at Psalm 65, and I want to walk you through a passage that has helped me uh, see and savor the glory of God for many years. And we're going to take it in three chunks, but I want to notice, first off, how verse 1 makes a bold claim. And the rest of the verses explain why that's true. Verse 1 basically says, we owe God our praise. Praise is due him. And verses 2 through 13 say, and here's why. So that's really just the shape of the sermon today. Uh, We're going to look first at verses 1 through 4. And we'll cover the rest in three points. The God of grace, the God of might, and the God of plenty. So let's read now. Psalm 65, verses 1 through 4. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, number one, God of grace. Um, Verse one is, is notoriously difficult to translate, not because we don't know what it means, but because we don't know how to communicate what it means in English very well. So, Your ESV probably says, well, not probably. Here's what it says. Praise is due to you, right? That's a a fine translation. But the heart of what the Hebrew is communicating below that text, the original language, is saying praise waits for you in silence. That's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Praise waits for you in silence. Let me read you what Charles Spurgeon said about that. I think it'll make it clearer. Quote, the praises of the saints wait for a signal from the divine Lord. And when he shows his face, they burst forth at once. Like a company of musicians gathered to welcome and honor a prince who wait till he makes his appearance, so do we reserve our best praises till the Lord reveals himself in the assembly of his saints and indeed till he shall descend from heaven in the day of his appearing. We shall continue to wait on, tuning our harps amid the tears of earth but oh, what harmonies will those be which we will pour forth when the home bringing has come and the king shall appear in his glory. Do you see what he's saying? you see what Psalm 65 verse one is saying? It's saying we sit in eager anticipatory silence, trusting God to show his face, to show his glory, and then we will burst forth in praise. We're going to erupt. The first reason why we'll praise him is right there. I think it's in verse two. David says to him, oh, you who hear prayers. Now, if that weren't there, I could just tune out the rest of it. What good would a God be who doesn't hear the prayers of his people? A God who's not listening is a God who's not there. But our God is the God who hears our prayers. So we don't cry into the void. We don't just speak into the universe. That's impersonal. That's hopeless. But God is there. God is personal. He's the God of hope because he's the God who hears prayers. Even when, think back, Exodus 1 and 2. The Israelites groaning in slavery for 400 years At that point, they didn't even think there was anyone listening on the other end of the phone. They were just groaning in their oppression and their slavery, and God heard. They didn't have their sacrificial system up and running. They weren't earning his favor in any way, shape, or form. They were just broken and groaning, and God heard prayers, and God rescued them. From the first pages of the Bible on we learn this beautiful truth that God is just all ears. He hears the cry of the, the oppressed. He he hears the confession of the broken and the broken again. He hears your requests. Even the tiny little ones, they matter to him because he cares. He's listening. Prayers in the Bible are often symbolized by incense, aren't they? Like smoke going up from the temple. And the idea is that it's a beautiful aroma wafting up to heaven to bring a smile to God's face. It's how I felt when I came down the stairs this morning and there's barbecue pork in the kitchen cooking. And I just, my stomach rumbled and I got hungry and I just, because I'm on keto. Let me tell you about that, actually. (laughs) That's the idea of what prayers are. They're a a beautiful aroma to make God smile. In other words, he loves to hear from you. Did you know that? What if we actually believed that? It might turn our prayers from this duty thing we have to check off in the morning to one of the greatest delights of our life. Yeah. He loves to hear from you. I had a boss once who was the least interruptible person I've ever known. You know what I mean? You couldn't just walk in his office and say, I've got a question. It wouldn't go well. But God is not a cosmic CEO. He is the most interruptible person. You're never in the way. You're never a distraction from something that matters more. Look, Jesus shed his blood for you. Nothing matters more to him than you he's listening he always has time for you and you matter to him that's the glory of god isn't it Mm. the second way that we see his glory is in the next verse i had the verses written in my notes but it vanished when i printed it but i think it's in verse three it is when iniquities prevail against me you atone for our transgressions god atones for sins our sins. Now, iniquity and transgression are just fancy technical words for sin. Iniquity is the kind of sin that makes me look down at me. I call it navel gazing. You know what I mean? Iniquity makes us self-focused and self-absorbed. Transgression is when we cross God's boundaries that he's set for us. And what David is saying is, even when my own false sense of self-importance obscures the glory of God, and I don't even go to him for forgiveness. God atones for sin. Yeah. Like, what if we had a God that just waited for us to come to him? Nothing would ever happen. That's who we are, but that's who God is. God atones for sins. God doesn't just atone. It doesn't just say God deals with transgressions. It says he atones for our transgressions. Right? Every sin against someone incurs a debt. And God paid your debt to him. He took the pain of it. Do you know that's what forgiveness is like as a Christian? Is it means you get to unburden somebody and release them and free them at your own cost? God did that for you. He bore the pain, unspeakable anguish for you because God atones for sins and when they prevail against us god still atones for sins do you understand that do you understand when david's talking about prevailing when your sin prevails over you against you in such a way that you you wake up and think i'm not even sure i'm a christian anymore and you run from God instead of running to God, God still atones for sins on the basis of Jesus, not you. That's glory. By the way, we're throwing around the word glory a lot. Do you know what glory means in the Bible? It means splendor enjoyed. God is magnificent in and of himself. He doesn't need to be seen or comprehended to be incredible. But when we see and enjoy his incredibleness, it's called glory. That's why the Bible uses words like splendor, beauty, and radiance to describe the glory of God. These are visible expressions of us encountering God's beauty and God's holiness and benefiting from it and enjoying that. So, God atones for sins, and that is His glory. It means in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through whom He took our debts on Himself, we have a way back to God. Like peace with God, eye contact without flinching, because we have the integrity of Christ. No matter what we've done, we can be whole. So he hears our prayers, he atones for sins, and here's what Pastor Ryan was talking about with the kids. He chooses and satisfies us. This verse is wild. <laughs> the Creator, the eternal Creator of the universe, chose you. What are we made from? Clay? No. Who are we that God should take notice of us? But He does. And he chooses us and he brings us into his royal house and he makes us family. He makes you royalty. What did we ever deserve to be royalty? Now, that choosing is God's electing grace. And if God's electing grace has not brought you to your knees in awe and love yet, then I invite you to consider it longer and deeper. It's one of the sweetest things. It's sweet because we know us. Calvin's Institutes begins by saying the knowledge of God kind of starts with not only knowing him, but also knowing ourselves. Because when we, kind of, when we try to encounter truth, We have to face who we are and our own limitations. So when I look at my past, my past week, I know my heart. I know my mind. I know what I'm like. You know what you're like. Do you deserve to be a child of God? Come on. Of course not. Not on our own. Bless you. Not on our own. We do not deserve it. But God elected us. How do you know if you're elect? Do you love Jesus? Then he elected you. He chose you. And the Bible doesn't present God's electing grace as this exclusive little camp. It's God's arms wide open on a cross saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's God's electing grace. It's wide open for you. And we know we've been chosen and selected when we find that we love him and trust him. But he doesn't just bring us into his family uh, just to kind of give us a status shift and then he go hands off. He knows that the new children of God and the family of God are creatures of appetite. All children are creatures of appetite. Now, we're children in the house of God, which means we have wants, we have needs, we have desires, we have longings, we have dreams and hopes and wishes. And that's why David says, with all the authority of God's Holy Spirit, We shall be satisfied. He chooses you, and then he satisfies you. I think that's wonderful. It means he makes us whole. Complete. Happy. And I don't mean chintzy happy, you know. Like, I mean, resiliently, defiantly happy in the Lord. Like Psalm 1, happy is the man, blessed is the man, who delights in the teachings of the Lord. And on his teachings, he meditates day and night. What is he like? He is like a what? A tree. Firm, rooted, nourished. In other words, that image of the tree defines what happiness means. It doesn't mean going around with a grin all the time. It means I will not be moved because God has me. That's what happiness looks like. Yeah. And what else in the world? What else can offer you that kind of dignity and honor? Nothing. Only God. That's the glory of God. Now let's look at the next section. This is verses 5 through 8. Psalm sixty-five, five through 8. and the evening to shout for joy. So number two, he's the God of might. Do you see the shift in tone of this psalm from how God relates to us to now his own strength and might? Now, if God were only a God of grace, then he would be kind but impotent. We need a God who is a God of grace and might right? If I said to you, uh, I, would, I'm gonna get, I would love to give you a billion dollars. <laughs> well, that, that would be very gracious if I had a billion dollars, right? But I don't have the power to do what I said I want to do. We need God to both want to save you and have the strong right arm to actually save you because our sins are big, and our sorrows are deep, and our burdens are heavy, and you need a God who rolls up his sleeves, gets to work, because he wants to, and he can, and God can. So God rolls up his sleeves and frees us from slavery, not to replace us with another harsh master. That's what it means that God works righteousness for his saints, is it means when he gets to work, for the betterment of his people, it actually gets better, not easier, better, right? We don't replace a slave master with another harsh master. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when God bears his arm to save us, we get transferred from the the house of slavery and all of its harshness. And we get yoked to a holy, gentle, meek Lord who actually comes down and serves us instead of demanding that we serve him first. That's why we can go to him with our burdens and our weariness. That's not like what this world is. This world, doesn't answer the cry of the oppressed with righteousness. That's why today's liberator becomes tomorrow's dictator. How many times have we seen that? That's why we go from, you know, a Republican to a Democrat to a Republican to a Democrat over and over and over in a cycle just exchanging one set of flaws for another because this world doesn't work righteousness in its salvation. God does. Amen. Amen. David is thinking of the Exodus here. His language is Exodus language. He's thinking of the Exodus and of the Red Sea. And at the same time, the Spirit of God speaking through David is speaking about the cross. With one mighty act of deliverance, the horse and rider are cast into the sea. And with an even mightier and more awe-inspiring act of deliverance, the strength of Jesus was made perfect on the cross of his weakness. And he freed you In verses 6 through 8, David turns his attention to two of the most profound, powerful things in nature, two of the most awe-inspiring things. And I realized, as we were singing your love, O Lord, this morning, uh, that it was taken straight out of this psalm. Did you know that, Nathan, when you picked the song? Yeah, of course he did. That's how Nathan works. Thank you for that. (laughs) I honor you for that. Genuinely, your thoughtfulness in this matters a lot. How beautiful is that? Mountains and the sea. Mountains are massively secure and seas are menacingly wild, aren't they? Especially in the ancient world, when they try to give you a picture of something solid, unmovable, they give you a mountain. And when they try to picture chaos, a calamity, we think of the sea because it's so terrifying and unknown. But our God, with his might, makes the mountains look puny Because he made the mountains with words. (laughs) You have to be pretty mighty to do that. Nothing is secure like our God. God. It says he girded them with might. He girded the mountains with might to make mountains a tiny itty bitty little picture of God's strength and massiveness and security. That's why mountains are majestic. Did you know that? It's so that you can have a tiny glimpse of the majesty of God. Nothing is secure like our God is secure. Nothing is immovable like our God. And our God is the sea parter, the wave treader, the chaos calmer. Every time Jesus interacts with the waters, the seas, the lakes, he's proving who he is and he's proving his might. Makes me think of Mark 4, 35. Jesus casually wakes up and takes for himself the power of God Almighty to confront the raging chaos waters. And he just says, peace, be still. And all of its raging cease. That's our God. That's his might. Now, you might have noticed that this text is uh, linking the idea of the chaos waters of the sea with the raging of the nations, right? I don't know how much news you have the stomach for, But things aren't going well in the world and haven't been ever. And what can be more overwhelming, (laughs) what more what, what can be more overwhelming and terrifying thinking about our future than the raging of the nations? Things aren't going in a good trajectory. So when Jesus said, peace be still to the waters, and they stopped, it's a picture of what he will do to the raging of the nations who shake their fist at him in defiance and say, we don't need you. One day Jesus will say enough and they will stop. They will all serve our King because he's mighty. We need a God of grace and we need a God of might. We need him to hear prayers, atone for sins to choose us, to satisfy us. We need him to work righteousness and inspire awe And lastly, we need him to be this, a God of plenty. Let's read from verses 9 to 13. Verse 9, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water water, <laughs> water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers. Isn't that beautiful? Blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. Isn't that beautiful? It it always makes me think of James 1, this fact that he cares for creation in such a way. James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of variation due to change. Every good thing we enjoy comes from God as a gift, not as just kind of a uh, happy coincidence. Do you know that? That means between, behind every single thing you've ever enjoyed in your life is the loving intentionality of God on purpose. Wow. <laughs> All right, so think about grass. As I was studying and preparing for this, I was sitting on the back steps of the church just looking at the lawn because it was freshly cut, and it was nice. So I did a little research. One blade of grass. Any ideas? Guess. How many atoms do you think are in a blade of grass? Someone, just give me a guess. Two? I see a two. I see a trillion. (laughs) Approximately three sextillion atoms in one blade of grass. Now, I had to look that up. That's a three followed by 21 zeros. In one blade of grass right? Then in a square foot of lawn is approximately 3,000 blades of grass. And at that, my math stops. I don't know how to to do that anymore, right? 3,000 blades of grass with three sextillion atoms in each blade of grass, each one of those blades requiring a complex suite of nutrients from the soil. Hydrogen and oxygen combined in just the right way sunlight filtered down through just the right atmosphere for photosynthesis for that one blade of grass to grow. Then think about all the lawns on all the planets. God grows each one of them. And if he so cares for the grass of the field, here today and gone tomorrow, how much more does your father in heaven care for you? Isn't that sweet? Specifically you particularly you. There's something like 7.9 billion people on the planet right now, and out of that, you're just one of them, and he loves you. His eye is lovingly on you. Some scientists and sociologists think there have been something like 120 billion people alive on earth ever, and he elected you. Praise God. That's his glory. He cares for creation, like we've never cared for anything. Next, he delights his creation. Look with me at the last section, verses 11 to 13. Verse 11 is particularly my favorite. It says, you crown the year, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Just let that picture sink in. God is pictured here like a divine farmer or maybe like a, the Greek Bacchus or Plutus. This is God with a cornucopia in his hands, overflowing with abundance. He's, he's in a wagon trundling across the earth and in the back of his wagon is every delightful fruit and grain and vegetable you can imagine. And as he trundles along, all this fresh produce, he is so much is just tumbling out the back of his wagon. That's God's abundance. Do you see him that way? David did. Jesus does. I love it. Our God is the God of plenty. Plenty. Not just enough, but plenty, right? He has an abundance. He has a super abundance of everything you need or desire. God has more than you could possibly imagine. And it's for you. Doesn't keep it to himself. It's tumbling out of his wagon. He has more love in himself. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He himself is a loving community. And creation exists because of a super abundance of love. Creation exists because his wagon was overflowing. And the earth tumbled out. (laughs) He has more love than we could ever contain. God has a far greater store of mercy in his heart than you and I have sin in ours. Praise God. God has more relational capacity for friendship and nearness than you can even imagine. And God has more riches in Christ stored up for you than all the vaults of the earth could contain. He's going to spend eternity Showing you how much he loves you. Did you know that? So verse one, going back, it begins with silence, doesn't it? A pregnant silence, ready to give birth to praise. And verse 13, the psalm ends with all creation shouting and singing praises to God with joy. And what else can we do but sing when we see his glory like that? That's why we spend so much time at this church looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because in the gospel, we see that God hears our prayers in the name of Jesus. Because of the gospel, our sins are atoned for by Jesus. In Christ, God chooses and satisfies us. And only in Christ. And at the cross and the empty tomb, God worked righteousness with a mighty hand, didn't he? At the presence of the resurrected Jesus, we will be filled with such awe. Did you know in Revelation, John, Jesus' best friend on earth, came into the presence of the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory? And it says, I fell down as one dead. Just looking at him. And you think the mountains are astonishing. You think the sea is terrifyingly strong. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is the God of might. And through Jesus, God cares for all creation. It says, it By you are all things created, and in you all things hold together. Jesus keeps the atoms of the blades of grass together. Creation coheres in Christ. And at the name of this Jesus, the earth will erupt in praise. Hasten the day. I can't wait. Let's pray as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table.